All right. And, and, and let me just say, it's kind of, we're, we're going to talk about this today. Uh, Joshua and Judges are part of what a lot of people can call the Deuteronomistic history. And both of you have to learn to say that because I had to work hard to learn to say it. And that consists generally of Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings. Considered to have a, a single author for all those books. And so that they're all, you know, if, if you can really take a step back, you, you can kind of see a pattern in those books. And we t we'll be talking about the pattern we're ending today, this pattern of the Judges. But anyway, we talked last week about Samson, his first girlfriend, and obviously he didn't learn a lot because so, he meets Delilah. Before that, he sees a prostitute. But he goes, and this time, he falls in love. Isn't that wonderful? And uh, no, I don't see that he gets married, but he falls in love, and he's obviously besotten with this woman, Delilah, enough so that the Philistines say, well, hey, this, this, this gal may be able to help us overcome Samson. So they come and they said, find out what makes his strength so great. We'll overpower him, bind him, so, and we'll give you 1,100 pieces of silver. We'll come back to that later. That's kind of interesting. Anyway, so what does she do? She says, please tell me what makes your strength so great and how you could be bound so that one could subdue you. Just a hypothetical question, right? <laughs> just, I'm just wondering... And so Samson, of course, what he, he just makes up stories. Oh, if you bind me with seven fresh bowstrings that are not dyed out, dried out, you know, these may have been uh, animal sinew or something. So, so then I shall become weak like anyone else. And that's fine, you know. But so what happens? Of course, she goes and tells the Philistines. So they go and they make the bowstrings and she ties him up and there are men inside ready to jump him. And she says, the Philistines are on you, Samson. And he jumps up and snaps all those bowstrings. So obviously not the answer. And this goes on. You know, you'd think Samson might get the idea. But, but, but notice what, notice, I always love what Delilah here. So the bowstrings don't work. You've mocked me and told me lies. Please tell me how you could be bound. So then he says, well, if you get brand new ropes. And, and she repeats it again. And then finally, you know, he says, well, if you take my hair, because we have got long hair, he says, weave that into seven strands, you know, then, and of course the same thing happens. The Philistines are upon you, he jumps up. And she, this time she really hits him hard. And uh, this is one of those phrases, and I'm just going to say my opinion. If, if you're in an argument with your spouse and you start off this way, you're out of bounds. How can you say I love you? How can you say you love me? Your heart is not with me. If you really love me, you'd t you know, you've mocked me three times and not told me. And, and Samson, uh, again, I'm, I'm not sure how to describe Samson other than a sucker. Uh, you know? He never was real bright. Yeah, he, yeah. And, and we're going to talk, you know, one of the questions I always think it's good to ask when you see these stories are why are they there? And I'm, we're going to go get to that later. So she says, you know, how can you say you love me? So Samson goes in and notice how finally after she had nagged him with her words day after day and pestered him, he was tired to death. Uh, just let that go without comment. Okay? <laughs> um, I'm not, I'm, I, I wouldn't touch that. 
So, he, he, and this time he tells, and I love it, he told his whole secret. Said to her, a razor has never come upon my head. And if I, for I have been a Nazarite to God since my mother's womb. Last week we talked about Nazarites. He said, if my head were shaved, my strength would leave me and I would become weak and be like anyone else. So next, this used to be, it used to catch people, I'll see, who cut Samson's hair? Delilah? No. She hires a barber or somebody. So she realized the whole secret. She called the lords of the Philistines. She says, this time come up, he has told his whole secret to me. She's, she appears to be confident now that he's really telling the truth. So they come, they bring the money, and, and she, he fall. you know, talk about a, a mean woman. <laughs> I'm sorry. She falls, falls asleep with his head on her lap, so she probably can't cut his hair. So she brings a man over, and he shaves off all those, those seven locks, apparently, she'd woven his hair into are still there. And he began to wink, weaken, and all his strength left him. So finally she's got him. And this time, same phrase, the Philistines are upon you. And, he, and, and Samson wakes up and says, okay, I'm just going to bust out of here. And he did not know, notice that the Lord had left him. God has now left him because that vow has been broken. I don't think there's anything magical about his hair, but the fact that, that the terms of that vow were no longer there. So the Philistines, of course, I think we all know the story. They grabbed him, they got, gouged his eyes out, they take him to Gaza, uh, bound him in bronze shackles, which I can't get out of, and he ground mill in the ground at the mill in the prison. The, his hair began to grow. So I, I just for once I decided to put a gra graphic in. That's an old grindstone. That's a Roman grindstone. It turns out at Ostia, but you can see in the back here, the bottom is a is a conical shaped piece. And then here they put a cap on it that fits over that cone. Here's a, a hole they put like a four by four in. They pour grain in the top and you just walk around in a circle and grind that grain. And that, again, that's probably a modern example. It was probably something like that that Samson used though. To, so he was basically put in the, in the status of a work animal. But then, like I said, his hairs began to grow back. And so it's time for the Philistines to have a big sacrifice to Dagon, have a big party. And part of the reason for the party is now Samson's been overthrown, this judge of Israel. So the people, you know, they saw him, they praised their God and said, Our God has given the enemy into our hand, the ravager of our company, who's killed so many, and their hearts are merry. said, Call Samson, let's, let's have some fun. Let him entertain us, the blind guy. Of course, Samson comes out of the prison. He does, you know, he does perform for them, whatever that means. And they made him stand between the pillars. And so this is fellow's leading there by the hand because he's blind. And he just says, let me feel the pillars that the house is resting on, that I may lean against them. I'm so tired. So he gets there. And so they look on, and of course, you all know the story that Samson, oops, calls on God and says, Jehovah God, remember, he strengthened me only this once. So that my, this, this one act of revenge, I'm going to pay back the Philistines for my two eyes. And he goes ahead and says, let me die with the Philistines. So again, he strained, the house fell down, killed everybody, and he was killed with them. And we're then told that he go, he's buried with his family. So what, what, what do we learn from Samson? Are there some lessons we can learn? And let me just cue you up that in a few minutes, I'm gonna, we're going to look, I want you to 
think of something that from this whole study of Joshua and Judges we've learned about God or ourselves or whatever. What did we learn from Samson? Why is, why is this story there? You know, the other judges we've seen, with the exception of Abimelech who made himself king, have been pretty decent guys. Or women, Deborah, you know, Gideon. They've saved the nation. They've been competent. They've been trusted in God. And then here's, here's Samson, this earthy man who's always chasing foreign women. Why is this story there? And I've, 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 uh, let me give you one idea. We're, we're, we said this is a part of the Deuteronomistic history. It's part of this whole history of Israel. And we're transitioning. We go back to Gideon. Gideon says, you know, God will be Israel's king. I'll never be a king. My son will never be a king or my son's. But one of his sons tries to. But we had this before we've been dealing with this idea that God's Israel's king. And we're going to transition into the next class in First and Second Samuel where Israel's going to have a king. And, and to me, Samson is sort of the ultimate statement, again, and we're told he was a judge for 20 years, that the judges just aren't working. And to me, Samson's story reminds me of Israel's story. You know, because what you see in Judges is repeatedly Israel doesn't learn. They go to, they go to foreign gods, they marry foreign women, and then things go bad, they're terrible situation, God raises up a judge to save them. They do the same thing again. Samson tells Delilah, well, this is, and this is my, my strength, and she, she turns him in, and he doesn't learn from that. Samson, to me, is sort of a metaphor for Israel. He, makes a, he, he doesn't learn from his mistakes like Israel doesn't learn from their mistakes. So here we're, we're, we're given a judge that just can't get it together. And, and to me, he's symbolic of the nation. You know, again, I have to ask you, why, why do you put a bad judge in? Why don't you just talk about the good guys? And to me, again, the fact that this comes at the very end says, look, even before the judges have always been Israel's salvation, and now we're in such a state that even the judges can't bring us around. We get <laughs> rotten judges. And again, how this guy, who as Paul said, doesn't give the appearance of being too bright. <laughs> How did he get there in the first place? And, and you know, it's like he, probably because he's a big, strong guy, and everybody thinks, "Oh, Samson, killing all those Philistines. He's our man." You know, they 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 chose a leader based on his physical prowess rather than his intelligence and his devotion to God, and that so it really went downhill. So I don't know. That's and and the other thing again that comes over over and over and over again in Judges and Joshua or Judges is the, the threat posed to, to, to the integrity of, of Israel as a nation and as a religious entity by intermarriage with wives of a different, uh, or husbands even. Just the idea of intermarriage with people who don't hold your values. You know, uh, and, and there's no denying, there, the marriage bond is something very exceptional. If, if it works at all, you're going to be closer to that person than you are to any person in, in, in you know. And if you don't, you know, this, I sound like I'm talking to one of my kids. <laughs> some, of us, some of us had this conversation. You know, it, you know you don't have, they don't have to be perfect, but you want somebody that shares those basic values, that share the basic beliefs, because if you don't, 
it's going to be tough. And probably before it's over, one of you is going to change. And that could be you. And for Israel, it, I don't, it was always Israel. You, you know, we didn't see these reports of massive Canaanites coming over to Yahweh. It's the Israelites, all, because again, they're in a minority. And they tend to go along. So, anyway. Any other thoughts about Samson? Well, you know, fascinating character. Uh, again, the whole idea of how he gets to be judged, why is his story told? Uh, again, if I'd been writing, I might have left this one out. So, yes? I'm just going to say, I think Samson is, I think I'm just like Samson. Oh, we, I mean, we all have some Samson in us. Right. And, and our strength is not in any physical thing. Right. It is in our relationship with God, and God is the one who has the strength, not our right. hair or our yeah. and, beauty and, or our yeah. intellect or any yeah. money or anything. Yeah. And, and Samson's strength was because he had kept that vow, that Nazarite vow that his parents made when he was born. He had all, you know, regardless of how much he messed up, he, he had kept that up until this point. And, and, you know... I think he thought he was a strong man. Yeah. And, I don't think he realized... Yeah, I, at this, yeah, and that may be it. He may have gotten to the point where he thought, it is me. <coughs> you know... And maybe, and maybe when he told Delilah that he he he, was, he had become so proud, you know, yeah, they cut my hair. It's not gonna it's not gonna matter. You know, I mean, if if you work out, obviously, until I don't work out every day <laughs> or, or ever. <laughs> but but you know, if you've got these big muscle guys that work out every day, they're strong. They think, you know, you, you think you're gonna be like that forever. And for Samson, once that vow was broken, it stopped because he was forced to realize it all came from God. It's not him. His vow wasn't broken until he had been living with this prostitute, still serving as a judge. Yeah, oh yeah. That, that's kind of paradoxical. Oh yeah, yeah. It's again, like, he's... Oh, I'm still good. I'm just... Yeah, again, Gemma, I wouldn't have put this story in there. <laughs> if I, but remember, that's where you get back. The author is wanting to show us that it's, it's time for a king because, as a matter of fact, we go right on over. We're going to talk about Micah and the Levite. Okay. This, this part of Judges may have occurred very early in time, but it's, the author has put it at the very end because he wants, again, he wants to show that the whole thing is just broken down, I think. Because he started off this, uh, Micah's mother has, he takes silver from her, 1,100 pieces of silver. Yeah, it's almost tempting to think maybe his mother's Delilah because Mary Delilah was given 1,100 pieces of silver for turning Samson in. I don't know. That, that's really wild speculation, but it, you know, it's kind of interesting to think. Here, you know, here's this woman with 1,100 pieces of silver. We just heard that Delilah got 1,100 pieces of silver. Maybe that's her. Maybe you know, we're a few years in the future. So, uh, so Micah, for whatever reason, brings it back. And you, uh, I'm really cutting, just so we can get through today, I'm going to cut this pretty close and just hit the high points. And so the mother responds, says, I'm going to consecrate that silver to Jehovah for the hand of my son to make an idol of cast metal. And immediately you see kind of how messed up things are, that you have God who said, make no graven images back to Moses. And now we're getting ready to make an idol, but it's for Jehovah. You know, it's the Lord in, all, in small caps. That's, that's the covenant name for God. And although she says she's going to consecrate the silver, it turns out she only consecrates 200 of the 1,100. So, you know, well, you understand. 
So anyway, they do that. Micah makes a shrine, makes an ephod and teraphim. We'll talk a second about teraphim. And he makes one of his sons a priest. He just says, okay, you're going to be the priest. All right. So then uh, along comes a Levite, who's apparently a real priest. So Micah makes a deal with him. He says, I'll give you 10 pieces of silver a year, clothes, and a living, if you'll, if you'll be my priest, my Levite. Do we know how much a piece of silver was, George? Uh, I, I don't remember exactly, but what I was told is this is a large amount of money. This is a very substantial amount of money. And this phrase I want to hit on. Again, remember, we're transitioning to a king, so what does the writer say? He wants to, he wants to associate all that's bad with there being no king. So what he said, in those days there was no king in Israel. All the people did what was right in their own eyes. And we're going to see, we're going to see this phrase in part or whole three more times in the last two or three chapters of Judges. Ramming home that idea, there's no king, look what's happening. So we're setting up the... More than that, though, I think there was no standard. Yeah. Everybody did what they thought. Yeah, yeah. It was individualized right. so much. Yeah. Which is kind of where we are we religiously today. Well, it is, yeah. 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 Uh, we are each our own interpreter. Right. We have Mr. Luther to thank for that. It says 28 pounds of silver. 28 pounds of silver, okay. Pretty good, pretty good haul. Even today, that's a lot of silver. So, okay, so no king in Israel. All the people did what was right in their own eyes. We're going to, again, see the phrase four times. So now, anyway, we're left. We have the Levites still there with uh, Micah and his mother. And, and we start off again, and, did, and uh, I just put this little quote about Dan because we're going to be talking about the Danites. But we find again, in those days there was no king in Israel. We don't have the additional, and every man did what he, what he wanted to, but we're told there's no king in Israel. Again, this is what happens when there's no king. So the Danites are looking land, for land, so they go ahead and they're out looking for land. They send spies out. Again, we have spies, this time a different number. They pass by Micah's place. They're blessed by his Levite. They go to Laish or Laish, whatever, however it's pronounced. And it's, it's a nice place. The people are, are well off. It's prosperous. And they say, well, we'll just take this place over. So they go out to take Laish, 600 Danites. And on their way, they go by Micah's place again. And they say, well, we'll just, we'll just help ourselves here to what Micah has. So they take the ephod, the idol, the teraphim, and the Levite. Um, and here's the passage there. Uh, the men from Micah's house, I, I kind of love the, the back and forth here. Took the, air, the priest said, what are you doing? They said to him, keep quiet. Put your hand over your mouth and come with us and be a, to us a father and a priest. It's better to be a priest in the house of one person than a priest for a tribe and clan of Israel. So, you know, we're going to take this stuff. We're going to take you and give you a promotion. Big promotion. So, George, in most of these cases where they have these idols, are yeah. they graven images of God or are they other gods? The teraphim is a is a interesting thing. Let me see. I've got a slide. Yeah, here we go. Glad you asked. <laughs> teraphim are mentioned several times in the Bible. Uh, they're, they're, they're some kind of, of like family gods or idols, generally, is the, the thought. There, there's, a lot of, there's still a lot of uncertainty as far as I can tell what they are. But if you remember when Rachel leaves her father, she takes the family gods. Remember the story? She puts them underneath her on the saddle. And when they go to search, she says, well, I'm having my period. Do you really want to search? And they say, no, we'll pass. Uh, 
when, when David is fleeing from Saul, uh, Michael, who is his wife, uh, takes a teraphim and puts it in the bed. Apparently this was a big one. And puts it in the bed so they'll think it's David. And that's the way she covers his escape. Later on, Josiah outlaws the, the, the teraphim. And, uh, and this passage in Zechariah, I think, gives us some idea of what the, what the teraphim were used for. It says, For the teraphim utter nonsense, and the diviners see lies. The dreamers tell false dreams and give empty consolation. Therefore the people wander like sheep, they're afflicted for want of a shepherd. So apparently the teraphim may have been used for divination, for predictions. So he says the teraphim are lying to you. And remember what we said about Hebrew poetry, how it rhymes ideas? The teraphim seem utter nonsense, the diviners see lies. So there, there are two ways of saying the same thing there. That's par and actually a triple one, the dreamers tell false dreams and give empty consolation. So it's, it's AAA. And then we end up saying, therefore, the people wander like sheep. They're afflicted for want of a shepherd. Parallelism there. So the teraphim were apparently used for, for divination, for prediction, whatever. And it's interesting that we don't see them condemned up here. It's only later uh, in Josiah's reform when we see the first really strong condemnation of teraphim. Uh, okay. All right. So anyway... The Danites have taken, taken the, uh, the teraphim, they've taken the Levite, and we have this little uh, exchange here. Danite, you know, Micah takes his guy, or guys and says, I'm going to get my stuff back. And Danites say, what's the matter that you come with such a company? You know, and Micah says, you take my gods that I made and the priest and go away, and what have I left? Then you ask me, what's the matter? You know what's the matter. You know why I'm here. And the Danites say, you better not let your voice be heard among us or else hot-tempered fellows will attack you and you'll lose your life and the lives of your household. In other words, you, if, if, if you're here for a fight, you better think twice because we've got 600 men here and apparently he didn't have quite that many folks with him. And so they, they say, if you're here for a fight, we've got some nasty guys, these hot-tempered fellows. So Micah does the right thing and turns around. Okay. So the Danites, taking what Micah had made, the priests who belonged to him came to Lachish, Lachish and people put, they killed the people of Lachish, they rebuilt the city, named it Dan. Notice they set up the idol for themselves. They still have this ephod, this idol that, that uh, Micah's mother made with the 200 pieces of silver. And so they maintained their, uh, their own as Micah's idol. It goes on and says, as long as the house of God was at Shiloh. So it, for the people who were there, that would have told them how long you know that was. So it's something that's, that lasted for a long time. So the story gets that's again, 400 years, huh? The Ark of the Covenant was in Shiloh. Okay. Years. So, and it gets crazier and crazier. Here's another story that's going to tie. We're going to tie this back to the Danites, but uh, so we have again. Notice first phrase. In those days when there was no king in Israel. We're not told people live, but we have a Levite who lives out in the hill country of Ephraim. He has a concubine. His concubine gets mad. She goes away to her, to her father's house in Judah and was there four months. So then the Levite's going to go back and get his concubine. It's kind of a secondary wife. 
So they go there, and he's con his father-in-law welcomes him, and they feed him, and like on the third day, he says, well, we need to get back. It's time for me to get back to Ephraim. He says, oh, no, I'll stay another day. How, you know, so he stays another day, and even that day, he stays, and they have lunch, and it's getting on in the afternoon. I mean, if you read this, it's all there. The afternoon, and the father says, father-in-law says, oh, it's too late to leave now. You don't want to leave? Stay another night. And, and the Levite says, no, I've got, to, I've got to get on the road. I've got to go. So they go on, they pass by some Jebusite cities, they get to Gibeah. And, and I, I don't know if this is a custom, but they go and they sit in the public square and waiting for someone to invite them to stay. This, this is the way hospitality works a lot. Middle East, big on hospitality. And sure enough, an old man comes along and he takes them in. And then he gets here and here's a, so a story that's just fascinating to me because it's reminiscent of Sodom. It sounds just like Sodom. They go in. Uh, and here the men of the city, perverse lot, surround the house. They beat on the door. They said, bring out the man who came into your house so that we may have intercourse with him. Just like Sodom, right? So the master says, no. And he says, uh, do not act wickedly since man is my guest. You must not do this vile thing. He's protected by the law of hospitality. Here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out, ravish them, to whatever, do whatever you want to them. But against this man, do not do such a vile thing. So they persist, and apparently, uh, it's, this doesn't make a lot of sense, the sequence here, but apparently the Levite at some point seizes his concubine and sends her out. She's, she's raped all night long, and on the mor in the morning, uh, they let her go, and she's found there on the doorstep, and she's either dead or she's almost dead because she's going to die pretty soon. So, you know, this terrible breach of hospitality by the men of, of uh, Gibeah there. So he, he, go, he picks his, his concubine up, he puts her over the donkey, he goes back to Ephraim, and then he does, uh, again, something we just can't imagine. He takes a knife, cuts his concubine into 12 pieces, sends those pieces all throughout the territory of Israel to each, obviously, to the tribes. And he, the men, he says, Thus you shall say to the Israelites, Has such a thing ever happened since the day that the Israelites came up from the land of Egypt until this day? Consider it, take counsel, and speak out. And so interestingly enough, the people respond. They said, we're going to take revenge on Gibeah. We'll go up against it by lot. We'll take 10 men from 100 throughout all the tribes, 100 from 1,000, 1,000 from 10,000. In other words, 10% of the men are, are going to go, and they're going to attack Gibeah and repay them. Interestingly enough, from what I could tell, in all this time since the conquest, this is the first time that all the tribes have united on anything. Before, if you look back when they attack, it's this tribe and this tribe and this tribe stayed home, but now they're all united by this heinous act against the, the Levite's concubine. So they go out and attack. They attack uh, Gilead. It's defeated in battle. Uh, and, and the other thing that happens is Israel swears that they're not going to uh, let their daughters marry Gileadites. So... Uh, Apparently about, I think the number is 600 of the Gileadites, Gileadites survive. And they said, do you really want to see a tribe disappear? If, if we don't have wives, we're, we're gonna, the tri whole tribe will die off. Uh, so they look around. They say, you know, when we were at Mitzvah and swore this oath, uh, the tribe of Jabesh Gilead, Jabesh Gilead was not there. So they said, well, what we'll do, we're going to go and attack Jabesh Gilead. And hopefully we'll get some women from there for you guys to marry. This 
craziness goes on, okay, for, in our mind. So they go, they find among the inhabitants 400 young virgins who had never slept with a man, brought them cap at Shiloh. And so they give these women to the Gileadites, okay? But remember, there are 600 survivors and only 400 women. So we're still short women. Said, so, oh, here's an idea. Every year there's a festival of the Lord that takes place at Shiloh, north of Bethel, northern kingdom. And it says, so you Benjamites go up there and lay in wait at the vineyards and watch. And when the women come out to dance, grab one. Okay? So each of you carry off a wife for himself, the young women in Shiloh, and go to the land of Benjamin. And it says, if their fathers come complain to us, we'll say, be generous and allow them to have them because... We did not capture a wife for each man, and neither did you incur guilt by giving your daughter. In other words, you swore you wouldn't give them. Well, you didn't give them. They were taken. So that makes it all right. This, 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 these, these kind of things are so foreign to us. You know, we read these stories, and they're just bizarre. They are to me. But they made sense to these folks in the, in the political and social economy they lived in. You've got to have wives. We've got to keep the tribe going. So anyway, again, things go, keep going south. That's, and that's really kind of the close of Judges. But the last sentence in Judges, we've, this is the fourth time we've seen it. In those days there was no king in Israel. All the people did what was right in their own eyes. So this really, you know, the, this, the, that phrase brackets this last se section that again may have occurred at very, there are a lot of things to indicate it occurred very early in the conquest. It's a very early story, stories, but they're moved at the end by the writer as a literary tool to say this is how bad it's gotten. The nation has to get a king. Again, you know, when, you, when, you, when you see a phrase repeated four times in two or three chapters, you better pay attention to it. Because it's, it, it's there for a reason. And the reason is to justify the idea. <clears throat> you know, the, the title of this course, if you ever, when uh, Eric put it out, was Nomads to a Nation. And we started out with a nomadic people, and now we're about ready to become a nation. For the first time, for whatever crazy reason, all these tribes have united with one goal. And they realize they need a king. So we're, we set the stage for Eli, for Samuel, probably who I'd consider to be the last two judges. I don't know how you guys look at them, but to me, those, they kind of serve that function of being the last two judges, Eli and Samuel before Saul's named king. And we'll talk, you'll hear more about them next week. So this, is, this, this finishes out, again, this great phrase. And it's a phrase I think we need to consider because, you know, one time, uh, I was reading some books recently, <laughs> Uh, fiction about, but it's, it's written in the time of Henry VIII. It's a, a humpback lawyer in Britain who solves mysteries. Okay, but back then, you know, you didn't do what was right in your own eyes. The Church of England, by golly, told you what was right, and you better do it. And and this is the time where they're transitioning from Catholicism to Anglicism, and you know, people were burned at the stake for not believing in transubstantiation. That was one of the things that the Church of England kept was the idea that the, the bread and the wine were literally transformed into the body and blood of Jesus. And, and if you're, if you're going to stand up and say you didn't believe that, 
Well, thank you very much. We have, we have a surprise for you. We're going to burn you at the stake. And if you're really lucky, we'll tie a little bag of gunpowder under your chin so it'll blow up and kill you before the flames hurt too much. That was their idea of mercy. So, so they're, you know, the idea that Martin Luther brought, really, that we, we're all our own interpreters. We're not, you know, is a rat, was a radical idea. And, and again, the Church of England was threatened enough by it that they said, we'll just kill them. If people, you know, if you don't believe right, we'll, we'll take care of you. So this, uh, and we're kind of here today in terms of religion. We, the idea that we're all, especially I think within our uh, fellowship, the idea that we're all our interp own interpreters is a strong one. And uh, speaking as a curmudgeon, I'll say the only, the only saving virtue we have is that we seem much less concerned about doctrine in any way than we used to be. <laughs> we, yeah, yeah. So, yes. I know I'm just a guest, and I'm sorry. Oh no, goodness. Yeah. We have a a clinic and a school we started in Tanzania, and the I just think that so much of what we see in the Bible is still so true. So much throughout the world and. The Maasai tribesmen in Tanzania do not like, generally, there's some exceptions, yeah. <clears throat> don't like for women to be educated. Oh, yeah. And so recently, <clears throat> was not at our school, but another school down the, mm -hmm. down the road from us, three girls turned up pregnant, and all of them were good friends, young girls, uh, like junior high, high school yeah. age. And when they become pregnant, they cannot stay in school. So they were going to be thrown out of school, mm -hmm. and all the girls went to the administration of the school and told that they went to draw water a few months before that. And when they went to draw water, because it's usually a child or a yeah. person's role, when they went to draw water in the evening, some of the young Maasai men were hidden in the bush waiting for them. And when they came, they grabbed them, pulled them into the bush, and raped them. Mm. And all three of those girls, who were friends, yeah. became pregnant. And it's because the young men did not like the women being educated. Yeah. So they got them pregnant so that they would yeah. be thrown out of school. Yeah. A lot. And, uh, you know, some of them may not have been telling the right, truth, yeah. of course. But, but these, a lot of the primitive aspects of culture that, that we think we're so far separated from are still there. So I want to just think about now some some sort of big big picture messages, and it, and you can jump in here anytime you want. But I've got several I got from Joshua. One is God will turn His back on unrighteousness. You know, when when the nation turned their back on God, it, He would turn His back on them at times. He let them suffer. You know, with what we always say with children, sometimes you have to let them suffer the consequences of their actions. You have to let you know. But the other half of that message is always we see in Judges when the people turn back to God, He turned back to them. You know, it's not, it's, the door is not closed. You know, there's, there's always a way back. You know, and, and you know, we, we see that here. You know, you see it a lot. People with drugs and alcohol think there's, you know, if you ever talk to somebody that says there's no way I can be forgiven. I have a relative who had lots of problems in his life and he just said, I just don't think God can ever forgive me. And it's hard to, when somebody's down, it's hard to help them through that, that 
false belief, but you get down on yourself and it makes a lot of sense. But always remember, God always answers when His people call Him. Uh, we talked about earlier today, when we live in a, a secular or pagan society, there are dangers. You know, we want to be salt and light, and sometimes it goes the other way around. We become, and, and, and it's impossible not to be influenced in any way. Uh, you know, I've, you hear a lot of people, very conservative church people, sometimes say, "Well, you know, they're just, they're just uh, doing, you know, they're being influenced by society." Well, guess what? In the '50s, we were influenced by society as well. It's just a different society that influenced us. It's not that, you know, you're, I'm all pure and you're all messed up. It's just I'm messed up in a different way. You know, I had a different set of things driving me. But there are always dangers, and we need, we need to watch. We need to. to to try to understand, and this is to me is the classic question of biblical interpretation. It's what's what's temporal and what's eternal. Okay, the other God's going to He's going to use whoever He needs, prostitutes, peasants, other nations, whatever, to accomplish His mission. First first person we met, Rahab, prostitute. You know, we had uh, uh, Gilead, the son of a prostitute. You know. Not the best people. And then, you know, J.L. the Kenite, she's not an Israelite, but she's the one who, who gains the victory over Sisera. Big questions. How do we understand this warrior God of Israel? You know, we, I, I think we talked that, that, we, that there's evidence that Joshua has hyperbole that people weren't totally wiped out. But there's no denying this is a God who took his people to war. And we don't like that idea. But we've got it. We it's there. You can't turn our back on it. And 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 what I see is that God sometimes will approach people in the situation they're in. It's a it was a warlike culture. It was a every, it was a warlike world. And for God's people to survive, He had to take them to war. We don't like that. But and if you got better explanation, that's great. But that that's that's kind of where I come down. I'd be much. Yeah, you know, there are a lot of stories back here in the old, old Testament is not for kids to read. <laughs> you know, there, there's some nasty stuff there. And the other question, I think, how 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 does God act today? You know, we don't have. I don't at least have God coming and telling me, you know, go up and kill this person or whatever. But we have to understand. You know, He acted in a very overt, crystal clear way once. Today, we have to sometimes look and struggle to find out what he wants. And to begin back to what we said before, how has the society affected us in our view of God and religion? And that's it for Joshua and Judges from me. Thank you, George. Thank you, George. Thank you for coming and sticking with me. I appreciate your, your attendance and your support and your comments. Thank you.